This message comes from NPR sponsor CFP, certified financial planner professionals committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Jada Pinkett Smith's new memoir begins at the top of a mountain, suicidal and in search of healing. Yes, as a successful film and television star, Jada Pinkett Smith had experienced success beyond her wildest dreams. But what it took to get there, growing up fast and reckless in Baltimore, Maryland, suppressing past traumas, she never really saw herself living past 40. In her new memoir, Worthy, Pinkett Smith contends with the way she coped in life growing up with parents who struggled with drug addiction, and the choices she made to survive. She takes us through her career in the inner workings of Hollywood as a young Black actress in the 90s and 2000s, and she shares new details for the first time on what she calls a highly misunderstood narrative about her marriage to famed actor Will Smith. Jada Pinkett Smith is an actor, singer-songwriter, talk show host, and producer. She has appeared in more than 20 movies throughout her career, including Menace to Society, Collateral, The Matrix Reloaded, Revolutions, and Resurrections. Jada Pinkett-Smith, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. Your book begins in 2012, Mm -hmm. shortly after your 40th birthday. You're alone and afraid and fragile. And this is new information for those who know your persona because you come across as so strong, so sure in yourself. You had done so well with this keeping it moving kind of attitude. What was it about 40 that was the turning point for you? Um, I just hit a wall. And I think not seeing anything in front of me, no future, nothing. It's like I'd never seen my life past 40. But up until that point, I'd been really in a deep struggle with depression. And I really felt a lot of shame around that, too, because I felt like how everybody else felt around me, like you have everything. What is wrong with you? And when you say you didn't see a future past 40, was it because you didn't even see the life that you had created thus far? And you're as something that was attainable? You had no... Yeah, it it was almost as if like I... Living fast in Baltimore, right? And just having that kind of youthful idea, like you live fast and burn out fast, right? It's so many people that I came up with that hadn't made it. I always thought I would never make it to 40, right? I never thought, that, that I just never imagined that. And I didn't even recognize that until I had reached 40, that I had had in my mind that, oh, you won't be living long anyway mm-hmm. for so many different reasons, mm-hmm. right? You mentioned in the book how really in your early 20s, you, you had a breakdown. Mm. Um, you got on Prozac yeah. for a moment, but you still kind of had this keep it moving, moving attitude, kind of like, okay, I feel better. I'm going to move on from this. You stopped taking Prozac. Yeah. That's kind of part of it. You were, you knew you suffered from depression, yeah. but you really didn't understand what that meant. You know, we didn't have, at that particular point in time, we really didn't have a lot of information around mental health. So if somebody's telling me I'm depressed, I'm like, okay, yeah. right. You know, like, okay, I get that. So that means that I'm going to be depressed for a little while, and then I'm going to be okay. Like it's a temporary state. Right, it's a temporary state, right? I didn't have real understanding on what that meant. 
So once I got on Prozac, I was feeling better. And then I met Will. And then Will became my new Prozac. Mm, Will became your new Prozac. Absolutely. Right. You know, he, um, you know, the, the relationship in the, you know, it was the whirlwind, like, just this romantic whirlwind of a storybook relationship. And it made me believe that I was okay. I found the thing. Yeah. You were also so young. Yeah. I guess I didn't realize that until I read it in the book. You were like 23. I was Willow's age. Your daughter Willow. Yes. The age that she is now. The age that she is now mm-hmm. is when I started my relationship with Will. And it makes me laugh because I look at Willow. And of course, she's so mature in so many ways. But she's so young. Yeah, yeah. She's a baby. Yeah. You know, the thing about um, you and Will's relationship is um, you lived it so publicly. Yeah. And it seemed like we knew the entire story just by the way you all showcased it on television shows and interviews. So it really has come as a surprise in the book when you make the revelation that you all haven't been together for seven years. You've been separated for seven years. Yeah. Why did you wait till now to, to tell us that? Oh, I really needed to work through a lot of anger and resentment. You know, I refi- towards him, towards him, towards um, me feeling like I never got the relationship I wanted. You know, like I helped you do everything you wanted to do, but I couldn't get the relationship. I couldn't ha- make this masterpiece of connection mm. between us. Mm. Right. And I did not because it's funny about Will and I. Even if the marriage wasn't working, there was still this level of friendship and deep connection between us. Right. And so you have these you have these two things going on at once. It's like, okay, trying to trying to have you as my husband is freaking impossible. And then at the same time, there's this thing that we have that we can just it's almost like we are made to deal with each other's Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like we're kind of assigned to each other, if that makes any sense, in regards to working through our traumas. It's like we really know how to hold space for that. And so when I dec- when we decided to go our separate ways, um, I realized I really needed some time to figure me out. And I didn't want to make a bloodbath of our separation. The thing about it, though, is that there were little hints, little inklings over the last few years on your show Red Table Talks. Yeah. You guys um, sat down with each other to talk about an entanglement, right. a relationship that you had had with another person during a separation. But yeah. you, you stopped short of saying, but we're still separated. I, I just want to go back, though, to what you were saying about you couldn't have the marriage that you wanted. Mm-hmm. Had it always been that way or was there a moment in time when it it became clear that you two both wanted different things? I think that, yes, we two wanted, we both wanted different things, but the things that we weren't, the things that we wanted weren't reasonable. 
We both came in to our relationship with really romanticized, idealized um, concepts, right? Going in different directions. Oh, give me an example of what you mean by that. So we'll really believe that, okay, if I make it big in this world, I can provide everything for you and the family. And for him, that is the biggest love language. Right. To have to to provide. Right. Protect and provide. Yeah. Right. That was his biggest love language. And my whole thing was like, but no, no, no. We need like we you and I, we got to have this. We got to have this connection. Like all of that is taking you away from this masterpiece of connection I'm trying to create. Mm -hmm. Right. So we both had really false ideas. And it's now this is a really universal problem right it's not unique yeah. right and so you know it 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 we both had these like really false ideas that we and we're both very strong-willed and so really trying to pull at each other constantly that's where that power struggle comes in no my way is the right way no my way is the right way you know if you don't have this roof over your head there's no place to love you know mm-hmm. like <laughs> all of that right and um And, you know, we just refused to really look at ourselves because at the end of the day, what I had come to realize in this time of separation is that there was no masterpiece of connection to make without me having a relationship with myself. Hmm. I couldn't look to Will to be the substitute For my relationship to myself, an intimate relationship with myself. You all were just such the representation of black love. Right. And you were on the Oprah show, I remember, and you had your two young children there. And um, I think Willow came out with a purse. (laughs) Yes, and our two two teeth were missing. Mm -hmm. But you all seem to exemplify, like, the possibilities. Absolutely. And you seem so sure about your love and your connection. Do you, in hindsight, regret those times? Absolutely not. Yeah. No. Because it was true at the time? It's true still today. It was true at the time, and it is today, right? And it's looking for the authentic construct, the authentic paradigm, right? And it's like at that particular point of time, of course, we had our issues, but we love each other. Yeah. And you were still striving. At and that we were time. still yeah. striving. And even today, listen, the relationship that this new path that Will and I are on is not probably going to be that which is in the ideal. What do you mean by that? Meaning like... Maybe I will still keep my house and, you know, live separate. I don't know yet, right? Because we are still in that process of, like, healing. Because since what happened at the Oscars, that actually brought us closer. Okay, let's talk about it. The infamous slap at the 94th Academy Awards ceremony. You devote an entire chapter to it in the book. You call it the holy joke, the holy slap, and the holy lessons. Yeah. Yeah. 
You have alopecia, mm-hmm. and Chris Rock made a joke about uh, your look, calling you G.I. Jane. And Will walked on the stage and slapped Chris. And you initially thought you were seeing a bit. I thought I was seeing a skit because he had been going back and forth backstage all night. From being in the audience to going, to going backstage. backstage. Yeah. And... When he got up, I was like, because, you know, all night people were doing, like, really this kind of, like, interesting people getting up on stage. It was, all you know, people, you know, some of the hosts talking to the audience members and what have you. It's like this, you know, back and forth with people, which was different. Hadn't been quite like that because the stage was really low. So when he got up and walked on stage, I thought to myself, did he not tell me that? He saw Chris backstage because even how Chris reacted when Will walked on stage was like, oh, here's Mr. Smith. I was like, oh, this Mm -hmm. is interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. He didn't say anything to me. And then when he swung and Chris slipped the shot from my point of view, you thought he slipped slipped the shot shot. like he he like he ducked back and there was no contact made because I didn't see Will make contact and. Chris was still standing. You got to understand, I've seen Will knock professional fighters down. Right. He played Muhammad Ali. He played Muhammad Ali, and he's a heavy hitter. Mm. Okay? And so I was like, there's no, like, no blood. Chris is still standing. There's no swelling. Like, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Um, And then when he turned around and he started walking back, I was like, something... No, that this is not a skit. Something's not right. First off, before we even go there on when you realize what happened, you all were separated at the time. So how did it even come to be that you had gone with him to the Academy Awards? So once he finished Emancipation. The movie. The yeah. movie. Once he finished the movie, um, a lot of stuff started coming up for Will. A lot, a lot of stuff came up for him. It was a very challenging movie to shoot. Um, It's about slavery. Yeah. Yeah. It was really challenging. And he asked me to get into some therapeutic spaces with him. And at first, I was a little hesitant, and then I was like... Nah, this is about healing. Because at that particular point, let me say, I've gone back and forth over and over again about, nah, nah, we're getting a divorce. No, you know, just like this back and forth with me. And um, so when he asked me, I said, okay. And so we started doing some really deep work. Deep therapy. Really deep stuff, like in ways that we had never. Like what? Like talk therapy? or It was talk therapy. We did some plant medicine together. We did a whole, a whole lot of different modalities of therapy. And it was deep, right? And we were really, we were really like making some really deep headway. And so when he got nominated, he was like, there's nobody else I want to experience this experience moment this with. Moment with. Mm. Would you be willing to be by my side during this time? And I was like, absolutely. Mm. You know, because no matter what, Will and I are always family. That's not going to change, ever. 
right? And so, um, so I said, yes, I will stand next to you, you know? I will be there with you because, of course, I want to experience this with you too, you know? And, but I was very aware of what he was dealing with behind the, behind the scenes, which nobody else, you know, was really privy to. A lot of what he was dealing with within therapy with you, you had learned and you, you knew what he was dealing with. Why, why do you think he did that? Why did have, he hit Chris Rock? I got to leave that for Will. You know, that's his story to tell. You know, it's his journey. And I think that he will, you know, but that's his story. What have you come to about it? Well, it was really interesting. You know, it was really, it was, it was quite a social, social study for me in regards to all the assumptions that were made. And um, because somehow you were vilified in all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting, you know, how, <laughs> how, um, you know, a woman who is seemingly so irrelevant can be so culpable at the same time. You know, it's like... What do you mean by irrelevant? So that's one of the lines that I have in the book. It's like, you know, people love to uh, make black women feel that they don't matter. You know what I'm saying? And just kind of that social attitude that, you know, women, black women are the least protected and seemingly the least relevant. And, of course, we're proving that to be completely wrong these days of what's happening, you know. But that I could somehow, by the movement of my eyes, make Will do something against his will or make him do something at all. Because that had been a narrative out there that somehow you gave Will a look Look. and then he went up on stage. (laughs) And did what he did. And I was like... You know, I was like, okay. It's like, listen, just like I said in the book, if I could have made Will do anything, (laughs) you know, these last three decades, okay, would have looked very different, okay? So, you know, but I also, you know, that, that was part of my curriculum of really seeing and really learning how to have compassion for all of it and embrace it all and accept it all and know who I am and not allow other people's opinions and other people's judgment infringe upon my self-worth. Yeah. Has it been reconciled? I mean, I know you can't speak on behalf of Will, Mm -hmm. but... um, He's given statements since then, and he's back out. He was promoting emancipation after that. Um, but do you feel like, uh, I don't know I, the right question for it, but do you feel like he's in, he's in a good place now? I do, you know, and I feel like, um, I feel like he's going to have a lot to offer and a lot to share. Yeah, I really do. And I think in a, in in a helpful way, right? He's had a lot of self-discovery. Have you decided if you all will divorce? Oh, no, we're not divorcing. How come? (laughs) I love him. 
He loves me. We just got to figure it out. And we're in the process of doing that. Our guest today is actor, producer, and author Jada Pinkett-Smith. She's written a new memoir titled Worthy. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, The Sympathizer Podcast from HBO. Host Philip Wynn joins the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Listen to The Sympathizer Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. I'm Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado, back with a reminder about our latest Fresh Air Plus bonus episode, available just for our Fresh Air Plus supporters. I found it just very, very useful to not be a journalist. I mean, journalists drop into a situation, ask a question, people sort of tighten up. Whereas if you sit down with people and just say, hey, what makes you happy? What's your life like? What do you like to eat? More often than not, they will tell you extraordinary things, many of which have nothing to do with food. The latest producer postcard revisits our 2016 interview with the late chef and author Anthony Bourdain. You can hear more for yourself by joining Fresh Air Plus at plus.npr.org. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley, and my guest today is Jada Pinkett-Smith. Her new memoir, Worthy, takes the reader through her life growing up in Baltimore, her career as an actor, singer-songwriter, talk show host, and producer, as well as her marriage to famed actor Will Smith. Jada Pinkett-Smith has appeared in more than 20 movies throughout her career, and her talk show, Red Table Talk, which ran on Facebook for five years, received a Daytime Emmy Award. So, Jada, um, you've lived a public life for so long. It was really interesting for me to read in the book about your life before Hollywood, (laughs) because we know so much about what's happened, you know, throughout your career. Um, it also really sets the stage for where you were when you were 40 years old, when you had this crisis, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So you grew up in Baltimore. Your grandparents were a big part of your life. Your parents, Adrian Banfield and Rob Saul mm-hmm. Pinkett, were high school uh, sweethearts and married shortly after your mother got pregnant with you at 17. Your mother has been in recovery for quite a while. We learned about that on Red Table Talk. But um, when you were growing up, you describe her as a full-blown, high-functioning heroin addict who was holding it all together. Mm -hmm. What did that look like? My mother was, at one point, a head nurse at a woman's clinic. Okay? 
and was deep in her heroin addiction. And how old were you about that time? Um, 16. Yeah. You know, and you would see my mother and she would be really well put together. I mean, sharp, um, beautiful. Um, you know, you you wouldn't really recognize her level of dysfunction unless you were inside her world. And you were inside her I world. I was inside her world. But on the outside, never know. You, after watching her, said to yourself, what is going to be my hustle? <laughs> oh, <And> yeah. <laughs> you knew, like, you were, you were creative. You liked lots of things. You were an actor. You were going to this wonderful school where you were, um, you were acting and auditioning for things. But you also were selling drugs. Mm-hmm. And I want you to paint a picture for us <laughs> um, of how selling drugs would seem like a viable option for you at, at that age. Oh, yeah, because, you know... In our environment, we didn't have doctors, lawyers, you know, professionals, you know, that were in our neighborhoods, right, that were like, that's how you do it. Like that person over there, we had hustlers. So they were the role models. They were the role models because they had the cars, they had wads of cash, they had, you know, protection and security. Um, They were loved. um, All of that. Right. And so for me, I was like, I want that. I want it now. And it was something that you could have instantly. Right. And so, um, you know, in my mind at that time, that's what I believed I needed to have power, safety, Security, love. What were you selling? I was selling crack, crack cocaine. At one point, you felt like, okay, I'm going to be a queen pin. Mm-hmm. You were really deep into it. I was. What did that look like? You were going to school by day, and then what? Yeah, going to school by day, sometimes leaving school in the afternoon and making runs, and then, you know, come back. Like, school for me... I came and go as I as I pleased. That was just, <laughs> you know, I mean, thank goodness that the faculty there really saw my potential. And, and my, my high school diploma was literally a gift because they were just like, get out of here. <laughs> get to North Carolina and do something with yourself. Right, because you went on to North Carolina School of the Arts. But did you ever feel conflicted knowing that your parents struggled? Never. Yeah. Never, because when you, you, it's, it's, we grew up in a war zone. So here's the deal. Drugs was going to be part of your life. Okay. You could use drugs. You could be a drug dealer's girlfriend. You could sell drugs. There was no not having a relationship to drugs. Right. And so you just figured out, okay, well, what relationship do you want to drugs? Right. And. I'm not, of course, when I think back in hindsight, in the mindset, the clarity that I have now, it's just like, what, are, like, what is that? And I have remorse for a lot of my activity mm. back then, mm. you know. But at that time, I was so immersed in a different mindset and in a different kind of environment, you know, that there was this level of survival mm. for me. 
you know, and so survive by any means. You survive by the resources that you think are right there. I mean, it was such a pivotal time period for you, graduating high school, this moment before you went to college, because you were making this choice for yourself. Like, Mm -hmm. am I going to be a queen pin? Am I going to sell drugs to continue to make money? Because you were making some good money. You were able to have your own car, do the kind of things you wanted to do. Um, But you had two near-death experiences that kind of got you out of that mindset. Well, they were definitely the ones I wrote about, yes. So. You had more that you didn't write about. <laughs> Man, those, yeah. I mean, but it was an everyday thing, you know? It That's was an everyday I, thing to almost, almost yeah, look death in the eye. Absolutely, yeah. and it's so hard for people to understand that that's not from that, mm-hmm. you know? A lot of people, when they read the book, and they go, you know, how did you, like, weren't you afraid? And, and, and it's very hard to explain, like, I know that experience seems extreme when you read it, but in relationship to everything that was going on in that world, that's lightweight. It's not extreme. It's not unusual. It's not like, oh, my God, I can't believe you had two nine millimeters to your head. It's just kind of like, oh, I'm glad you made it out of that, shorty. I'm glad. In so many ways, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, But can you describe a little bit more when you say it was a war zone? You know, I mean, going to clubs, you knew there was going to be a shootout. But we went anyway. Hands down, there was going to be a shootout. You're going to hit the floor. You're going to be running. Somebody is pulling out a gun. And you know that. That's entertainment. Hmm. And you're like, it's cool. You're like, you're just ready. Because you're not going to miss the party. You're going. What do you think that is? That's, 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 you just develop a certain mindset that is programmed to accept and to accept what you have. And also that you just might die because you don't expect to live. You don't expect long. to live. So it's like you're going to sit in a house. It's like that's part of it. Pe- I have friends that were... Listen, funerals, we were going to funerals like barbecues. I hate it. Like, we were going to funerals like barbecues. And I mean, young people my age, I was, it, 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 that's just what it was. I mean, I can't even tell you the, the amount of friends that I've lost, you know. I've had so much loss in my life. Some losses were more extreme than others, you know, but when you got that late night page, you already knew, you know, if you if your phone was ringing late at night, you already knew somebody had died. somebody. Right. And so, you know, that that was just and I wish that we talked more often about and I think we are now. You know, we we pay a lot of attention to the violence that happens with men. But when I was coming up, so many women, you know, that were, um, found their demise at the hands of violence. Mm. You know, that we don't, I still think we don't talk about it enough, Mm. you know. It's part of why you hit a wall at 40. Yeah, and probably why I also had that breakdown at 
2021 because I wasn't allowing myself to deal with any of it. You know, I didn't I didn't allow myself to deal with the level of loss, trauma, all of it. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is Jada Pinkett Smith. She's written a new memoir called Worthy, which chronicles her life growing up in Baltimore, her career in Hollywood, raising children, and her marriage to famed actor Will Smith. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, MassMutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. MassMutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a mass mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at massmutual.com. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Today we're talking to actor, producer, musician, talk show host, and author Jada Pinkett-Smith. She's written a new memoir titled Worthy. Pinkett-Smith has appeared on television and more than 20 movies throughout her career, including Menace to Society, Lowdown Dirty Shame, Collateral, and the remake of The Nutty Professor. She also hosted for five years the Daytime Emmy Award-winning show on Facebook, Red Table Talk. You seem to have this way of, of knowing what works for you. I just, I think I laughed out loud when I saw that you turned down being the best friend for the hit sitcom <laughs> Blossom. Yeah. You were going to be, they offered you that role. What yes. made you know that something else was better for you? You turned it down. Instinct. Not having anything else. Instinct. That's part of where that that street confidence, right? It was like you, your instinct. At that time, my instincts were so dialed in any environment I went into, the first thing I would do is dial in my instincts, right? And so I just knew. And I just knew, I, first and foremost, I was like, I'm not, I, I can't play a 12 year old. Like, I. Because how old were you at the time? I was 19. <laughs> yeah. And I was a wild 19, you know what I mean? And I was like, I can't play 12. And I remember my agent at the time, Nancy Rainford, she was like, oh, Jada opportunities like this don't come by all the time, you know? And I just knew, I was like, Nancy, ooh, just ride with me, ride with me on this. And she did. She did. She trusted me. And then within two weeks, different world. A different world. Yeah. Which was a spinoff from uh, the Cosby show. You went to audition for a role that was a temporary role on the show. It was Mm -hmm. just kind of a role that was a walk-on on the show. But you met... Um, Debbie Allen. Yeah. She wrote she wrote a character based on your life. She did, Lena James. And she was like, I went and auditioned for 
a college student that had contracted HIV, and it was a starring role for for one episode. And she, you know, after I did my audition, she said, "Tell me, tell me about you. Where are you from?" tell me about your life. So, you know, we got into this conversation and she was asking me questions and, you know, and I was like, and I'm going to be the next Debbie Allen. Like, I went to Baltimore School. You're in front of Debbie yeah. Allen I'm going to be the next, next you. De- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she cracked up. And so, you know, when it was all said and done, she said, I'm not going to give you this role. She said, but I'm going to bring you on this show as a series regular. That was your big break. That was my big break. Yep. You also write, though, I mean, and you touched on this, but the way that you were treated in Hollywood during those early days, you describe it as being kissed on one cheek and then backhanded on the other. Mm-hmm. What did that what did that look like? You know, it was. Blackness was celebrated on screen. But blackness was not celebrated off screen. Right. And so that was one part. And then the other was, you know, I was really rough around. (laughs) I was really rough around the edges, you know. And so there was always something wrong with Jada. Mm. Like what? Like Like you need to She's too hairy. She's too, you know, she, I always, I would always have to audition. You're too hairy. I was too hairy. Yeah, I was too hairy. Because, no, you have to, you have to, we have to talk about this on NPR. I just have to. (laughs) Because being hairy in the black community. That's sexy. Right. Yeah. So you came from Baltimore thinking like, I'm, I have hair. I'm hairy. I got, you know, I had a little hair on top of my lip. My legs are hairy, you know, my arms are hairy. You know, I'm having, some black actors are like, never shave your legs. Make sure you never (laughs) shave your legs. You know what I'm saying? And then, you know, you have the Hollywood community who's like, oh, she's so hairy. You know, (laughs) wax her immediately. Like, so... (laughs) You know, so I was like, oh, okay, you know, and then it was my hair, it was my attitude, it was the way I talked. I, I, it's just one thing after another, right? And so I just had to figure out how to play the game in a way that wasn't going to steal who I wanted to be. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest is Jada Pinkett-Smith. She's written a new memoir called Worthy, which chronicles her life growing up in Baltimore, her career in Hollywood, raising children, and her marriage to famed actor Will Smith. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a Tempur-Pedic mattress made with a -a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. Jada, one of the most enduring stories about you 
is that you and the late rapper Tupac Shakur were not just childhood friends. You were thick as thieves. Yeah, we were. I don't think I really even understood the depth of your friendship until reading this book. He was one of your best friends, and the two of you met during orientation sophomore year at the Baltimore School for the Arts. Yeah. Can you describe that first meeting? He was holding court, like, he was holding court in the upper left side of the theater that we all assembled in. And I remember coming in, you know, I'm coming in fashionably late. Jada's flash, you got, you know, she's, I'm here. Jada's here. And he's holding court, and he looks over, and I look to him. I'm like, oh, who's that peanut head dude over there? <laughs> <laughs> and we catch eyes, and I'm like, oh, okay. And then, you know, I'm, I'm this social butterfly, so I'm going to talk to my people. And then he comes over, and he goes, hi, I'm Tupac, he and holds it. out his hand. And I shake his hand, and that was the first time. I was like, oh, man, his hands are so clammy. And <laughs> I used because I would tease him about those hands of his, right? And, um, and we were inseparable from there. It was as if we had known each other, as, as if we knew each other. It was crazy. It was just like instant. Instant. It was instant. Little known fact, he wanted to make a rap female rap group and have you in it. <laughs> yes. He he succeeded. He made a he had me part of the female rap battle group. And I did one rap battle cuz I couldn't rap at all, okay? And I did one rap battle. We won, and I was like, that's it. I'm not going to, because he was so Was hardcore. it freestyle, or was no, it? No, no, What no, was no. it that you he guys wrote did? Me, he, he wrote me. He wrote it. Yeah, he wrote me a rhyme. Wow. And I found, when I was going through, when I was writing the book, I had to go through, like, all of my letters and what have you. And I still have letters from him, like, from high school. And so I found a rap that he had written for me during that time, and it was awful. <laughs> it was an awful rap. It, it was terrible. I was like, what? But um, he probably had to really simplify it because I just couldn't rap. So, You know, I mean, by today's standards, when we hear uh, letters, we think, wow, that, I mean, that you only write letters if it's romantic. But back in the day, yeah. that's how we communicated. That's right? right. We didn't have texts and emails. We had letters. Right. Yeah. Your relationship with Tupac wasn't romantic. No. Yeah. That's something that is, I mean, I think when people hear a guy and a girl yeah. so connected in the way that you guys are or were, um, how would you describe it then? You know, I think some relationships you just can't really give a title to. That's what I'm starting to realize. You know mm. what I mean? It's like, because... It encompasses so much. You know what I mean? It's like he was like a father to me at times. Sometimes he was like a brother, a big brother. Sometimes he was like a little brother. Sometimes he was like a platonic boyfriend. Sometimes he was like, you know, my nemesis, you know? And um, he was so many things to me. When he wrote the song Dear Mama, which is still as it's still an anthem mm -hmm. for imperfect mothers. We're all of us are imperfect mothers, Absolutely. really. But um, he sent it to you to listen to. Yeah. And what did you think about it when you first heard it? I loved it. 
I loved it. He had so he had he was a little concerned. Yeah, and not about concerned what? like, yeah. oh, but like, like what you think? Because at first he was like, I wrote this about our moms, you know, and of course it was about his mom, his mom but and your mom. The yeah. idea that a mother who's addicted to, you know, substances. substances. And he was, he didn't know if he wanted to bring that journey to the, to, to, um, to his music. And, and I just thought, I, I just thought it was so beautiful. It was so honest, but yet it was like this beautiful acceptance, you know, of just, of it, of, of it. imperfection yes. and love, a mother's love. Yes. And I, I was just like, wow. I was like, Pac. I said, I think I think your mom is going to love this, and I think this is the best song you've written so far. You know, it's just like, I was. I just fell in love with it. Do you still feel that when you hear it today? I do. I rem- Every time I hear Dear Mama, I remember him calling me. And I and I visualized the cassette tape because <laughs> it was on tape. Yeah, yeah, it was on tape. I visualized the cassette tape. The last time you all saw each other, you had a fight. It was yeah. an argument. Mm-hmm. You you all never spoke again because a year later he was murdered. Mm-hmm. It's one of your biggest regrets. I don't know if I would call it a regret. It's definitely a big lesson. Right, because everything I'm, I'm always I don't really have regrets. I can have remorse. Situations can give me big lessons. That was a big one, you know. Um, what was the lesson? You know, just a lesson around pride, and think taking taking time for granted, and thinking. You know, I really thought Pac was invincible at that time. He had been through so much, right. Yeah. And he had survived so much already. Things that people know, things that people don't know. But he had survived so much. And I never thought in a million years that we would have that argument and that he would be shot and actually die. Mm -hmm. You know, so I really learned not to allow my pride to keep me from communication and reconciliation, right? And so even now, as, as morbid as it might seem, like if I'm in a deep conflict, the first place I go to, if I'm in a deep conflict with somebody, I go, if you were on your deathbed or if this person was on their deathbed, would this moment matter? Mm-hmm. And most of the time is no. <laughs> Unless I got some real strong pride. <laughs> you know what I mean? But most of the time it's no. And that rectifies it right there. Yeah. Do you ever think about what your friendship would have evolved to had had he not been murdered? Oh, yeah. One, one thing's for sure. I do believe him... He and Will would have been really good friends. Mm. I do. I really believe that. I believe they would have been really good friends. They would have had a lot to offer each other. A lot to offer each other. I think he would have adored my children. 
He really, I think one thing that people don't know about Tupac is that he loved kids. He loved kids. He loved children. Mm. He loved children. And it would have been nice to see, you know, his daughter or his son. Yeah. Jada Pinkett Smith, thank you so much for this conversation and thank you for your book. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Jada Pinkett Smith's new memoir is titled Worthy. On the next Fresh Air, the legal group that's become the conservative Christian movement's most influential arm. The Alliance for Defending Freedom's victories include overturning Roe v. Wade, and current goals include a nationwide ban on the abortion pill and limits on LGBTQ rights. We'll talk with the New Yorker's David Kirkpatrick. I hope you can join us. You always was committed. A poor single mother on welfare. Tell me how you did. There's no way I can pay you back. But the plan is to show you that I understand. You all appreciate it. Don't you know we love this week? Dear mama. Please no one above this You all appreciate it. To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorak directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.